Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Thanks for joining Adweek's, RGA's, and the 4A's Beyond the Pledge podcast series, where we hold tough and honest conversations on equity, diversity, and inclusion. We tear down myths and discuss how we can hold brands and agencies accountable. I'm your Beyond the Pledge series host, Jai Tedeschi. Allyship became a household word last year with organizations and people taking steps in this time of racial reckoning to better understand what it means to be an ally. Joining me to discuss allyship is Tony Affick, founder of Black and Brilliant, to unpack what it means to be an ally, the impact individuals can make within their organizations by becoming an ally, and how it drives inclusion. Tony has decades of experience in the industry, operating at the intersection of advertising, media, and digital technology, and co-founded Black and Brilliant, an advocacy group for people of all backgrounds, with the aim to burst the pipeline policy myth and champion a more diverse workplace. Welcome, Tony. Hey, Joe. Thank you so much. <laughs> really, really excited to, to be here today and to have this conversation with you. We crossed paths many moons ago, and we crossed paths in so many other ways as two people who made the transatlantic <laughs> journey, you know? Absolutely. Um, um, London to the United States. Awesome. It's great to have you here, Tony. Thank you. So before we jump into all things allyship, I'd love to hear the backstory of Black and Brilliant that you founded last June. What made you want to start this advocacy group? <laughs> the funny thing is, Joe, I didn't. I didn't want to start it. It was a weird thing. I remember around the time of George Floyd, my wife came to me and she said, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. And I said, oh, man, I just got too much on. I don't think we can do it, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> There's just too much going on in our family right now. So, you know, my wife and I are super busy. I also I teach and we were coming up to the full semester and I just started the job. And I said I, that there was nothing we could do. The real turning point for me was my daughter, who's turned 13. And right. she was really the pressure point for us. And she's just come at this point where she's kind of 13-year-olds now and not what 13-year-olds were when I was a kid. Right. <laughs> There's a level of maturity and political awareness, and she wanted to march, and 
I live in Brooklyn, just down the street from where a lot of marches were happening. So we marched. And then it just occurred to me that I could do more. And yeah. as a family, I had got tired of saying to my daughter, you know, don't do what your friends are doing. You have to work twice as hard as them just to get what you need to get. And it just dawned at me that why should I still be saying that? Yeah. And George Floyd was the breaking point that pointed to wider inequalities. And um, when I started talking to people at work about this and I thought back to my history, my career, there were so many great bosses I've had, really white guys, um, who would, with all honesty, say, I just can't find the talent, the black talent. And then I would speak to black friends of mine, colleagues, associates, people I'd heard of, who would say, I just can't find the opportunity. <laughs> so, I, so I started to think about it as an engineering problem with a, a kind of like a matchmaking problem. And that's where I had this idea around, well, I know typically what happens is that people say they can't find the talent. They start building a pipeline. It takes a year. They find a few junior people. They don't make it to the middle. The people in the middle don't make it to the top. And I thought, enough's enough. What yeah. happened tagged like 30 people who I knew and then got them to tag other people using the hashtag, which is black and brilliant. And then I did that one Saturday morning and then it went viral. And after then, people start saying, uh, you know, now we've done this, let's start to talk and meet. And that's how this loose network of people was born. So by accident, basically. By accident. And would you say that was it all people within the advertising industry or was it broader than that? A lot of the times the pipeline problem that I often hear of like, oh, there's not many people in advertising that's where I find it hard you have to go outside of the industry in order to find the talent yeah so I think so with regards to that original post because my network I spent you know over 20 something years in advertising so that was a a core of it but obviously I'd spent a lot of time in technology and in media in the latter parts of my career so a lot of my network had started to spread out so I was I would say the core of the people were advertising but I was purposeful in making sure they weren't all advertising. So I know a bunch yeah. of people in finance, technology companies, consulting, et cetera. And I made sure it was global. That's the other important thing. So I had people that were different parts of the world. So that was the answer to that. And then the second part of your question was that, um, yes, you do have to look outside of the industry. So I yes. think you need to do two things. I think there are transferable skills. So I moved from being a brand planner to a comms planner, to working in an entertainment company and now working in a technology platform. And I still, I fundamentally still do the same thing. So I have what I think you call transferable skills. And so I think it's fine. Since we haven't nurtured talent in quote unquote, the advertising agency industry, you know, that maybe takes a decade to kind of nurture, we should be looking elsewhere to bring people in. Like I was able to move from vertical industry to vertical industry, I would say. But even then, I push back on that has been completely necessary because I think that throughout my career, I have seen people who were more junior to me who people took a chance on. Yeah, absolutely. Non-black people, people took a chance on, and they saw that those people had high potential, didn't necessarily have all the experience and the achievements. And then those people, you know, kind of leapfrogged. And did incredibly well. And so I think there are black colleagues of yours who you know they're talented. You know they can do the job in your heart of hearts. And you need to kind of, I think as we talk about allyship, take a stand for them and, you know, invest in that potential and give them that shot. If you're not going to do that, then look for people with transferable skills. 
there are many options to solve this problem. I totally agree. And I'm sure myself and many people that I know who have excelled and pushed through has had somebody that's taken a chance on them, somebody that's been an ally and a champion for them and their career. So I couldn't agree more with that statement. Okay, so let's move on to allyship. There are many different ways to be an ally and many different roles they play. So to name just a few, there's the ones that are vocally in support of someone or an underrepresented group. You have someone who helps amplify minority voices in a very public way. Um, and you have those allies who seek to learn as much as possible about the challenges and prejudice faced by colleagues and marginalized group. I personally think that it's important for an ally to listen, but also to act. There's no such thing as a silent ally. Um, yeah. so, so Tony, in your opinion, what makes someone an ally and what are the types of allyship that you think is most needed in our industry right now? One of the things I think about, there are careers and jobs with fences around them. So yeah. you can see the job. <laughs> you could even be in the right organization and see the job, but you mm. can't get to the job. And an ally is somebody who's probably on the inside of that fence. And what they're about is about helping you cross the fence or even better, dismantle the fence, take it down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, and I think when you think about that idea at its core, you make the distinction between someone who's, and I think you talked to the, about being vocal, somebody who's a, a believer. Most people in advertising are probably not card-carrying racists, let's be yeah. frank. They're probably not card-carrying racists. I, I think I would vouch for that. But are they actually doers, builders? There's a difference between the believer and the builder. So Ibram X. Kendi talks about this idea of the opposite of a racist is not that you're not racist, it's that you're an anti-racist. Yeah. And there's an anti-racist agenda. And one of the examples I use, completely left field to bring this to life a little bit. In 1983, David Bowie, yeah, so Brixton boy, um, <laughs> was being interviewed on MTV, very early days of MTV, and he didn't do interviews, really didn't do interviews. Yeah. And so MTV felt they'd lucked out on getting him to do this interview. And um, as big as it comes as a musical celebrity. And then when they gave him the platform, what he chose to talk about wasn't necessarily just David Bowie. He chose to talk about the fact that MTV did not have any black artists on MTV. They had yeah. a state policy at that time of avoiding even mainstream black artists talk about the beginning of rap, you know, hip hop and where it was going. And so it wasn't just that move, but it was moves like that and by others that led to a whole generation of new franchises in MTV, like your MTV Raps, Cribs, et cetera, which essentially became hugely successful. But before that point, no one had stood up and confronted that power structure to say, this is unacceptable. Everyone had just kind of accepted it. So David yeah. was an example of someone who, in that moment, was an anti-racist, a builder, not just a believer. So I just want to just second the idea you talked about, about being vocal. I love that. And it's also using your privilege and your platform yeah. to spread a message, even when it feels like that is not, you know, the subject of the matter. Completely. Taking and, all opportunities. And that, and that idea. So some people kind of like um, push back at this notion of privilege, yeah? Because they yeah. think, here's the thing, yeah, because I know a bunch of people who work incredibly hard to get to where they got to in advertising. And in the back of their minds, they don't always say it, but in the back of their minds, what they're thinking is, well, you weren't there when I was working late, you know, when I was doing this and doing that. What they don't realize is that there's a bunch of people who did all of that and still couldn't even get across the fence. And so, and this is proven out. So let's say, for example, um, you're in an office and you hear some kind of microaggression 
that's voiced against a black person. And the black person who is the victim of that steps up and says, hey, you can't really say that. That's not acceptable, or goes and complains. Some research by some psychologists, um, Heather Rosinski and Elizabeth, so Alexander Chop, shows that allies are actually perceived to be, they're perceived to be positively looked at when they confront a microaggression, whilst the black person who confronts is considered to be a troublemaker. <laughs> so take that concept and you start saying, well, an ally is the person that, even if the black person's not in the room, the black person feels that even if they're not there, you got their back. And it's seen more favorably, as you say. And I think, yeah. and even when they are in the room, it's good to have that support because often we are the only ones in the room in these corporate environments. And it can be a very lonely place. And you're not always at the level where you feel that comfortable. So I think it's, I think it's important to have those allies in the room with or without black or someone of color in the room, a marginalized group to speak out and for it to be seen as okay, to normalize it. Completely. And key times as well. So let's say appraisal time. So half of the time, the people in the room doing the appraisal don't always know that person, or even if they do know that person, sometimes I've been heard of stuff where somebody said a certain type of thing and you think, well, that feels very subjective. That's not correct. That's not true. So when you're that person in the room, I would argue if you're a true ally, knowing appraisal time is coming up, check on that black person that is going to be appraised and just get a little bit of a download on the stuff they've been working on. If you really want to step out of your zone and be a builder, not just a believer, you're the kind of person who checks in on your black colleagues before appraisal and gets their side of the story. So when you're in that room and something is said that doesn't quite match the reality, challenge it. Because yeah. it's at those moments where things like this start to go wrong. Or, for example, when the, the pitch team has been chosen for that pitch that everyone wants to be on, then you should be that person who's like, okay, have you thought about this person to be part of that, that team? So key moments like that, that's the times when an ally steps up and does something. I like that because it also shows that there are small things that can be done, even if somebody's performing really well and they've worked on your team, saying to their manager, they did a great job and making sure yeah. you share when you can see somebody that it's excelling. We all know those people in our organizations where you're like, wow, I thought you were senior. You're so great. Making sure you don't just say it to that person. Make sure you're as vocal as possible and say it to their manager and their colleagues and ensure that those people that are great are excelling and moving up. Is like a small thing that you can do, which is not always about microaggressions. It's about saying what you see and championing talent. So we've got allyship and it's something talked about a lot. The one thing we don't talk as much about is like advocacy. So what role do you think advocacy plays in creating a more equitable workplace? And from your work with Black and Brilliant, can you speak a little bit about some of the tangible results? I think for me, advocacy is somebody, like for me, an ally is somebody who's kind of got your back. And I think for me, in many respects, an ally is like, if you think about in international affairs, countries are allies, you know, they share the same moral backbone, the same interests, they believe in the same things and they work on the same things. I think an advocate for me is somebody who is just going to speak out on your behalf. So they're slightly different things. They'll speak out at times like this. Now, I think part of that is getting to understand the stories behind this. I think sometimes when you think about black colleagues and non-black colleagues, one of the issues I find is that a lot of the white colleagues don't actually understand the stories that the black person came with to get to that point. And for many of us, the struggle is real. 
just to yeah. get into that room, the experience is real. When you're sitting in those offices, for many of us, you're, you're, in, a, you're in a new environment. You're dealing with new types of people, and there's this concept of double consciousness. So an advocate is the kind of person who gets to know the story behind the talent and is somebody who can tell those stories on behalf of other people, their personal stories as well as the, the aggregate stories. Um, an advocate is also, for me, somebody, like if you follow basketball, which I've started to do since I've been here, um, you know, you look at the story of Dean Smith. He was the legendary coach for Michael Jordan. Right. And his pastor said to him, look, you should start bringing black athletes into, into your team, which was down south was a big deal back then. Dean yeah. Smith is now more famous for being the advocate and the coach of Michael Jordan than he was for being the coach. <laughs> and yeah, so, sure. so the key thing I'm saying is like, you don't have to maybe invest as much as that to be an advocate. You're the kind of person who should maybe, you know, grab a coffee or someone and ask their story. Because yeah. if you grab a coffee with that young black guy who you walk past every day, in the tech team or in the creative team somewhere, and then you get to know their story, you can speak for them a little bit more. And I think that's, that's important. And, and I think you maybe get to know a little bit more of the deeper story behind the experience. We got to recognize and say that some people to get to the same point had to work a little bit harder, had to show a little bit more grit. Why don't we celebrate that? An advocate is the kind of person who steps up and celebrates them. I love what you said about actually understanding their story. It's definitely something that we've been doing um, a lot at RGA with having listening sessions, but also doing sort of like what we call allyship circles, which is small intimate groups. We did a allyship compulsory sort of training. And even though that was great, it felt more like compliance and to truly understand someone and to truly have empathy, you have to have that conversation. So having smaller groups, having those conversations, sharing stories about like intersectional things within the sort of EDI space was the best way of truly being able to become an advocate, to understand the struggle in their story and to give context almost to why and how we do the things we do. That's a really interesting point. I was talking to a former boss of mine um, a while back and he was just out. Oh, we always used to, when we travel, we go, sometimes everyone goes, for, I don't know, it was post-George Floyd and we, I was talking about the fact that I don't go for, if we're traveling a certain place, I don't wake up in the morning and go for a run in the morning. And that really shocked him. And that was up soon after I'm at Albury. And I said, that was an example. It's like, you could be in the wrong neighborhood. You run into the wrong neighborhood and that could be it. I also, for example, certain time at night, I'm not going to walk around in a hoodie. My kids, yeah. you know, in summer, they're not allowed to have play guns or, you know, even certain wall pieces. My wife won't let them have it. Same. Um, Story after story, and then people were really shocked that these were true stories. And I think sometimes we as black people don't actually, and this is sometimes bad on us, that we don't share these stories as frequently. We, we felt that we didn't have permission to walk into the workspace and talk like this. Or even like you don't want to be treated differently or feeling like you're making an excuse. I, I definitely have had similar experiences where I think there's so many moments like that or small parts in our lives that we have to consider that is kind of part of the story when it comes to white privilege and what it means to have privilege. And it just becomes so normalized that you forget that it's even a thing. I was even just looking at schools for my kids and I check, yes, how great the school's doing, but I, I check the sort of diversity mix because I want to make sure my kids are in the right environment. Those are decisions we have to make on a daily basis that not everyone has to make. And I think understanding that, especially when you're 
coming into a workplace, understanding the decisions we make, the music we listen to, how we speak, how we present, how our hair is, all of the yeah. things to consider before you've even like entered a room and had a conversation adds a level of context. And until, as you kind of put it, until those fences are down, we have to understand what those fences are in order to be able to even start to tear them down, to be advocates and to become true allies. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. So that's the same type of stuff I think about, particularly with, with children. Another thought just to add to that, which I think um, builds on that point, this idea of double consciousness. So let's say, for example, you are a white exec, you're trying to make it through, and someone says, ah, I don't think you're right, you're there right now. So you might still think that's not fair. You might think you are right, or you might just analyze it and think deeply about whether you're in the place to take that job right now. Now, if you're a black person, <laughs> you have to do exactly that, but you also have to have this idea that you might be right, but actually yeah. the reason you're getting the job is because of discrimination. And the reality is, I remember when I was coming up in the planning community, and I remember going for a really big agency job, one of my first big agency jobs, and the person said to me, oh, there's something not quite there yet, there's something missing, you're not ready yet. I look back at that time, and I'm like, okay, at the time, I kind of like felt, no, this is discrimination. This is like, they can't point a finger in it. I've had that so many times. I had it many times after that, probably right at the very early part of my career. But I had to still process it on that double level of consciousness. And yeah. there's so many times and situations where you face that. And it's, it's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting. It's confidence sapping. Yeah. Um, at least the paranoia, it's all sorts of stuff. And, uh, you know, you come back from a day at work and you're like, man, that was, that was tiring, you know, because you're having to do everything everyone else is doing. And then you have this other layer. I want to be in a place where we don't have to do that. And I think clarity, even, you know, what's kind of coming up by this conversation is just like clarity. If somebody is an advocate and has an understanding of what people are going through, understanding that it's important to be clear and there could be, you know, some stigma or misconception that some decisions are made purely through bias, but based on the color of their skin, it's important that we give people clear roles, defined tasks that need to be done in order to make it to the next level. All of those small things are part of being an ally and being an advocate. It can manifest in so many different ways across the journey. I'm 100% with you. And it's something that I spoke about a lot and I've spoken to many people about knowing if you're right and if you're ready and whether the decisions are made for reasons of bias or just because you're not ready. And I've definitely had moments in my career as well where it's just like, actually looking back, they were probably right. But you still need to know what it is you need to do to get to that next level. You need that sort of coaching and, and mentorship. So another thing to talk about here is when we talk about allies, we often think about white people. What is the role of the Bane um, as we say in the UK, um, or the BIPOC population? What role can they play to help increase diversity? So it's, it's an interesting question because I think there's a generational change, at least based on my generation. You're a bit younger than me, so... I, uh, I'm <laughs> thank you. I was just about to say, don't be trying to age me, Tony. <laughs> but I'm not going to age you, so yeah. So basically, my generation, both in the UK and in the USA, maybe even more so in the USA than in the UK, because I think we were still kind of like, I was one of the first generations to really come into this business. There was a few people before me, but even at my time in the early days, there wasn't many. But one of the issues here is that typically there used to be this idea that we have our black person. <laughs> we have the one. 
Okay. And so once you have the one, it creates a certain mindset in that one. And that one person, sometimes, not always, I'm saying because it depends on its personality type. It's about level of confidence. It's about level of authenticity. And it's about, I would argue, level of obligation and duty and higher, higher calling. But some people feel because typically these organizations just wanted one, that by bringing somebody else in, you were risking your own opportunity. I've spoken to many people who... One, one in, one out. One in, one out. That was a big mindset. That was an issue. The second issue was when you're a black person and you bring another black person in or you champion, you feel that hiring that person is a big judgment <laughs> on me because, oh, that black person brought another black person into the job. And it's as if that black person represents the whole of your ethnicity, your race, your origins, everything. There's a lot of weight around a black person bringing another black person into a company. The third thing I think, which is really interesting, I think is just this idea that um, the person that you bring in can't just be good, can't just be okay. This person has to be Beyonce. You know, in terms of the Beyonce of performance, of, of planning, the Beyonce of creative, whatever it is. Andrew Odong, a guy who works with us in, at Facebook and Black and Brilliant Network, wrote about this recently. It's a great piece. And it's like, you can't just be like a solid B like the rest of your colleagues when you bring somebody else in. I personally experienced this where people had to have this, this, and this. And I'm like, but, but we don't all walk around with all of those attributes. So... I think the generational turning point, going back to that, is that I think that younger people now, Gen Z in particular, and said, I don't know why the rules need to be different. So we full circle back to my daughter. So my daughter, she has no expectations that she needs to do something different from her friends. She doesn't, unfortunately for me, as a Nigerian dad, doesn't think she needs to perform as well as everybody else. <laughs> so, so I'm like, you, you got to... So the idea now, though, is that I think that the new generation want more authenticity. They want to bring their whole selves to work. They want to stand up in the culture. And I feel they've grown up and given permission to do that. So I think we are in a place right now where I think we are going to see that change. And we are seeing that change. We've seen that change where we see ourselves as a culture ad, not culture fit. That's another thing about this business that I took for granted. You find someone who can do the job. And then you, you interview them for culture fit. I did that for like 20 years. <laughs> but I think what that really means, that means that they, like us, when actually what you really want is for them not to be like you because that's where innovation and creativity comes from. So I would say that. And then I think the other piece of this that is super important around BAME and BIPOC driving diversity themselves is that so frequently when, particularly in the creative industry, you want to make sure that your ideas are reflective of the people around you, the society and the culture around you. And I remember feeling a little bit muted in the early parts of my career when I was young, and I didn't necessarily speak up in the way I should have spoken up. Not against racism, because that's what I stand up against, but there's little subtle things around representation, how we acted, spoke, how campaigns were constructed, who the target audience was thinking much more deeply, even around the visual representation and that kind of stuff. You know, there were so many ways when I think back that was just taken for granted as the way things were done. So really, I think what we could be doing, because there's different types of diversity. Yeah, there is representational diversity in terms of are we hiring enough people at the right levels, but there's also identity representation. Are we actually 
capturing and communicating what these people, our people, really are like, you know, and are we speaking to them in their voice in a way that is authentic and true and resonates with them? And so I think there's many different ways, and I'm heartened by the fact that the younger generations are taking this very, very seriously. I agree with that. And I also think that the BAME and the BIPOC community, like exactly what you're doing with Black and Brilliant, bringing us together as a network, helping each other. Yes, we're going to have our advocates and allies help bring us up. And as they sort of understand the struggle, they'll be better placed to be able to support. We know better than anyone else what it's like to, to come up in this sort of um, industry and to be able to like reach a hand down and help the next person up is so important. And I definitely agree and feel what you said about when you bring that next person in, they need to be the Beyonce. But yeah. I also think that's something we put on ourselves too. Yeah. I will watch someone on telly doing anything. And if they're black, they're representing me too. And I will like, if they're embarrassed, I'm embarrassed. There's this sort of like, I don't know, like invisible sense of relationship and we tie ourselves to each other. If somebody else is successful, we see it as a personal success, but if somebody else's fails, we do take it on ourselves a lot too. So just trying to relieve that burden from ourselves a little bit and helping that next wave of people come in because it's, it's strength in numbers and to be diverse, you can't be the only one. It's less likely you're going to be speaking out. And as you said, in the earlier days when it was, you know, I was very often the only one also, it's, it's a harder situation to speak out. You don't feel as comfortable doing so. And if you don't have allies and advocates, then it makes it even harder, you know, to do so. And then you wonder if you have the authority to say anything. Yeah, yeah. So I think we just need to be that community and the network that you're creating and the education um, that you're providing from senior level talent to people in the middle and helping them move up, I think is, is vital as we move towards trying to create a more diverse industry. So, um, Tony, in terms of diversity, we talked about it from an industry perspective and internally, but what about partners and suppliers? Like, what role do, can they play in increasing diversity in reducing the wealth gap that we know exists? Yeah, so the, the wealth gap is one of the biggest issues. With wealth comes power and equality and all those kinds of good things. I think we're super focused on making sure that it's representation in employment. Mm-hmm. Really, the real engine room of true diversity is going to come from closing the wealth gap. And the wealth gap is going to come from really thinking about black startups, suppliers, etc. And so, for example, are your photographers diverse? Are you using yeah. the production companies who are diverse, not just in their ownership, but in actual their staffing? You know, because remembering it's not an equal race because black startups disproportionately have lower levels of investment and so kind of stuff up in the right way. So I think we have to have to look a little bit deeper into this. You know, pretty much every one of us has some kind of supplier relationship. Yeah. Other suppliers diverse in their ownership and actually in their staffing. That's really critical because actually that's going to have a significant impact on all of us as well. Yes, it's something we're definitely looking at internally at RGA. We have many things to come out that won't release now, but we are definitely looking at it from a startup point of view, but also our own suppliers. And one of the things we're doing through Black History Month and beyond, you know, like, yes, we can buy back products, which is important, but who's our construction partner? Who do we use for our printers? Who are, who are on our photographers' reels? So those things I think are extremely vital and you can't talk about diversity without talking about the true 
ecosystem when it comes to your partners and suppliers. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tony, for joining me. It was good to have a chat or chinwag with you. (laughs) So social justice movements, they've gained so much traction around the world last year. And we're at a moment right now to support the movement with real change. But this won't happen overnight. We need to keep moving forward, talking about systemic issues rooted in our culture and organizations and lay the foundation to create lasting change. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.